Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I am Aaron Schweitzer, publisher of The Source Weekly and co-host of this podcast. I am joined by Nicole Vulcan, our editor. We are powered by The Source, of course, uh, Ben's locally owned newspaper. Listeners tune in to find out how our community is dealing or not dealing with our ever-evolving new normal. Today, we are speaking with Eliza Wilson. She is the pro- program manager of Grandma's House of Central Oregon for JBARJ Youth Services. Eliza has lived in Central Oregon for the past 17 years. She has spent her career working with a variety of homeless service providers in Central Oregon and has been with JBARJ Youth Services for the past six years. Having experienced homelessness as a child, Eliza became a client of JBARJ's Cascade Youth and Family Center Loft program when she was a teen. Her experience as an advocate for homeless services started while she was living at the loft and has given her the opportunity to speak locally in state government and nationally about her experience as a homeless youth. Eliza has also served as a board member of the Homeless Leadership Coalition for six years, and we are very grateful to have her on the program today, given the importance of homelessness in our community lately. Uh, Eliza, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Erin. I appreciate it. So, Eliza, maybe we could just start by having you give us what you see as a general overview of the issues surrounding homelessness in our community right now. Yeah, I think um, recently in this last year, there's been a lot of coverage around homelessness um, in the area. And I think a large part of that is just the visibility um, of of the folks experiencing homelessness. Um, A lot of people tend to congregate in central locations um, because like us, they really need to have access to resources. And so I think that's a big part of why this has really been a hot topic for people. Um, but, but really, like, I think our, our area, I think homelessness across the nation has been, um, just growing because of the pandemic and our economy. Um, but in our region here in Central Oregon, um, we really have high rent and low pay. Um, for a lot of just like working families um, and then folks who aren't able to work, um, just having options for like affordable housing or low income housing, there just isn't enough here in Central Oregon. Yeah, I mean, obviously, affordability is the thing that we think about first when we when we talk about this issue. What are some other barriers to keeping to getting people housed um, in the community? Yeah, um, I think that's really individual based. You know, I think um, there's really no, you know, type of person who experiences homelessness. Um, aside from housing, which is it's this huge one, right? Affordable housing um, locally. I think um, some other barriers is just um, folks who need additional support besides just housing. Um, maybe they need some um medical support or um, addiction support or mental health support to be successful in housing. Um, So we definitely um, need additional services like that to support folks so that they can be, um, you know, stably housed. Um, But just other types of barriers that keep people from being able, like being able to find housing. Um, I think there's not really one avenue, like for every person, we really need to have like a variety of services in the area, everything from like affordable housing to permanent supportive housing for people who are are disabled. Eliza, um, I I can't pull myself away from going on to the Nextdoor app and 
reading about all of the misconceptions and just strange things that people say and believe about the homeless population. And I'm wondering if you could speak to maybe some of the common misconceptions that people have about the homeless population. Yeah, I always, I guess, try to tell myself, like, understanding builds empathy. (laughs) You know, like me personally, like, having lived experience of homelessness, and when I hear and see those things, um, it, it sometimes really affects me. Because uh, I don't think I think that generally people um, think that someone who's experiencing homelessness, like they all kind of fit in the same mold. They're an addict who chooses homelessness, which I don't really think that people choose to become homeless. Um, I think that there's all I think it's a social issue. Right. So very similar to like racism, where lots of things f- feed like systemic racism, just like lots of things feed homelessness, um, whether it's like the foster care system and people not having like um, stable places to come, like to go after leaving foster care and not having family support, um, whether it's like trauma and abuse and neglect of children and them not having, you know, stable families, um, veteran, you know, veteran homelessness, um, elderly homelessness, um, I guess like the there is no one face of homelessness and in in our region um I was just reading a stat um that was was put out yesterday um by uh, the Oregon Alliance um on homelessness and really they um focus a lot on like um families and youth who are experiencing homelessness and the stat is that 51% of children who experience homelessness are under the age of 5 wow yeah, I think I think people don't they see what they see, right? And it's the folks who are standing on the on the side of the road, um, trying to get resources that way um, for a place to stay or for food or other things. Um, but that's not really the the whole scope. Um, there are a large number of seniors in our in our area who are experiencing homelessness. We know there's a large number of veterans, um, but just like families and children, um, single parents and then and youth um, our youth. I think it's over 200 um, percent rise in youth homelessness in the past year in our region. Um, so I think that just like understanding how that happens um, I think is the first step and to know that many of those people, many of the people experiencing homelessness in our region are working full-time jobs um, and trying to make ends meet and provide for their families, but cannot find housing. I mean, there's a lot, we see a lot of that too. So it's really not for lack of trying. Um, And I think just, just there's lots of opportunities in our area to volunteer, you know, at the shepherd's house, like feeding the homeless or, or, um, the family kitchen. Um, there's lots of organizations that you can do volunteer work. If you're really concerned about homelessness issue and what feeds that issue. Eliza, the the one thing you brought up, I just wanted to pause on was that, that lack of trying and, you know, as misconceptions go, that has to be the, the, the one that I see the most is that, pull yourself up behind your bootstrap mentality and, and that if there was just more gur there, then, 
you know, we could, they would really turn their selves around. How do you get across to people that, um, you know, there's a little more going on there than motivation. Yeah. Um, you know, interestingly enough, like I'm, I work with youth, right. Who are experiencing homelessness and I sit in a lot of, I, I go to a lot of meetings and public events where we're talking about youth homelessness. And that's not just something people say about you, uh, about adult homelessness either. They say that about youth homelessness. Wow. We're talking about children under the age of 18. Well, what are they, how can they try harder? How, what are they not doing that they should be doing? Like, oh, they're not trying hard enough. Um, and that's why this is happening. I think that we're just, we're trying to blame the person instead of blaming the true issues that lead to homelessness. It's just like blaming a person who's ill or like who has a mental illness. Um, well, they're not, they're not taking their meds. So they're not, you know, like it, I don't know. I have a hard time with that. Um, because it just from my experience when I was in high school and I was homeless, um, I was homeless off and on throughout my life as a child, like with my family, but then also, um, as a teenager when I was in high school and, um, I was living in a trailer in the Walmart parking lot and did not have transportation to school um, and or running water or a way to wash my clothes or necessarily like having like regular meals, um, but still making to school somehow. Um, and then ended up dropping out of school because I didn't have the transportation and the way to get to the place that I needed to be. Um, so like there's so many situations like that where people, I mean, they're cold, they're hungry, they don't have a way to change their clothes or socks or dry shoes, and you're and they're still being blamed for lack of success. I guess it's just like I think people need basic needs to be able to thrive and to like step take steps forward. Yeah. And if they don't even have access to those things, and of course, like a service that's not I'm not saying service providers aren't doing so much work to support people in the community. And I think that's the main reason that the HLC is here and we're active and we're still doing the work this many years later is because we want to bring those people together and the services together so that we can support folks the most we can or the best way we can. Um, but I think just like understanding what a person goes through when they're experiencing homelessness will build empathy. And, and we won't see that as much where people are saying, Oh, well they should be ticketed or, <laughs> or, or we should criminalize homelessness because it is hard. And I mean, it's not easy. It's not easy to be homeless and, or to get out of it, you yeah. know? Yeah. To, we definitely want to talk about um, the criminalization element and some, some activity around that in the community um, in just a little bit. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to touch on camp sweeps a little bit before that. Um, I know um, HLC has been present during some of the sweeps of encampments, and these are informal places like Second Street where folks have have gathered um, with tents and perhaps RVs um, and subsequently had those places, um, you know, swept. Um, I know there's there's different ways to, to term that. Um, so... What has HLC's role been during these um, these removals? Um, so you said the HLC was present at the sweeps. You mean um, our members? Some of our members were present. 
That was my understanding was that there, that members of HLC have either been present or, um, you know, advised the, the city or who are the other entities such as ODOT when they're doing those sweeps. Just want to understand, um, what, yeah, what's think, HLC's role there? Yeah, I think that that, um, there was an article that came out that said that, um, someone who is a member of HLC was advising ODOT, um, I think that was taken out of context a little bit. My understanding of that was taken out of context. Um, lots of our members and myself being one of them, we sit on a lot of different boards and, um, you know, like groups in the community workshops in the community to like talk about, um, you know, a shelter and, and the camps and, and safety and those types of things. So I think that that my understanding of that was that, in one of those meetings, ODOT was talking about um, their statewide, the sweeps that would be happening, um, and then spoke to someone who's a member of the HLC in that um, there was no planning around the sweeps from the HLC. The HLC doesn't participate in planning sweeps. Um, and actually, we came, we did come out with a letter um, and sent it out to our membership and I think some other people around sweeps, um, you know, as a board member of the HLC, we have to be really careful about, we have a broad, diverse group of members, um, shelter providers, um, you know, St. Charles, all sorts of like medical providers. There's, there are so many people who are a, a member of the HLC. So when we come out as a board, um, um, we talk about like what, what should our response be to this? Um, really the HLC, we're the continuum of care for our region. Um, and so we have federal mandates. That's really our focus. Um, but with this particular, this last um, camp removal um, on the, like from ODOT, we did come out with a letter just saying that we, we believe in, when, in creating long-term solutions for folks before removing them from land um, or from camps um, because it does sever ties with, with, with providers who are coming there every week or multiple times a week to provide them resources. Um, and a lot of times those folks like just kind of have to move to the next location, um, which is kind of what, what we saw happen with Emerson. Um, when they were removed from Emerson, they, they moved to the ODOT land and then they're moved again. Um, and with winter coming, um, there is concern about um, folks being connected to service providers so that they can get the things that they need. You know, maybe you can elaborate a little bit on what you've seen. I think there is some, <clears throat> I mean, certainly I go again to some of the social media conversations that are confusing to me. And the idea being that if you sweep, then somehow that problem has been taken care of um, because, you know, they're no longer by the on-ramp. I don't see it. Um, and, and somehow those people have miraculously now are employed and living in, in sheltered housing. What have you seen after the sweeps from an HLC's perspective? And, and what does that look like? What role does HLC play once all these people are, are basically put in flux? Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's kind of confusing. So the HLC, we, we meet regularly and we, we try to provide education and support to the community of providers that, that do the real work. Right. So we're not, 
we don't do direct care. Some of our members do. Um, so I can only speak really from my outreach team. Um, so I, I do oversee an outreach team for JBARJ who works with youth. Sure. And then have other outreach workers who are part of the, the membership. Um, so I think what we've seen is, is what happens every time they do camp removals is that it's hard to find folks. Some of them, I, I heard in this last, in the last meeting I was in, like I think last week, some of the folks they have, the providers haven't been able to, to contact since they, they, were, they were removed. And that's a concern um, because a lot of those folks, they rely on those resources for things like heat and, and food and, and other items that they need. Um, so that's really most of what I've, what I've heard. Um, what was the other part of the question? I'm sorry. No, it's fine. There seems to be this misconception that somehow they're moving, like, I mean, moving, moving, like we've, they're no longer in the region. And really what I'm hearing is it's really just that you lose contact with them for a prolonged period of time, but you end up seeing them again, I assume. Yeah, that's just not the case. I I think that um, it's really, it's just not understanding that if we remove people from, from camps, they aren't moving out of the area. And I, um, you know, without referencing like other, like your last podcast, (laughs) um, you know, so like I said, in the beginning of this conversation, um, people congregate in central locations because that's where resources are. Right. So just like us, like if we don't have transportation, we're going to need to be close to a grocery store, close to the medical or like close to town, um, close to the bus route because we don't have a vehicle. So people just don't have the resources to leave the area if we remove them from a camp. These are people who are relying on us for resources. Um, And many of them are disabled or, um, you know, elderly or very young children. There were some young children who were in the camps that that were removed. So people are not... Yeah, just like people aren't coming to Ben to be homeless, people are not leaving Ben to be Yeah, I wanted to ask something about that. I mean, this is a place where anyone, everyone, it appears, is trying to move here because we've got a nice quality of life, clear skies, mountains, beautiful things. It's not a surprise why people want to come here from the population in general. When it comes to people without addresses, some community members claim that offering more services just attracts more people without, um, without homes. What's your take on this notion? I know you just um, talked about it a little bit, but let's elaborate on it. Yeah, that's just simply not true. We have data around that and we, um, you know, publicize it (laughs) in a big way often. Um, it's on our website on the, um, the HLC website. Every year we do the point in time count and we ask folks, um, every person that we can, can, connect with who's experiencing homelessness. We ask them how long they've lived in central Oregon. Um, and, and, you know, like those types of questions. And it's just not true that people move here to, and then like to become, to be homeless. Like, I guess they don't move here for resources. Um, there are other areas that do have more shelter than we have in our community. And that's not for lack of trying. I think the city of Ben and Shepherd's house, like, um, you know, having the low, the low barrier shelter that's, that's just, um, I mean, they're serving 70 to 83 people a night. 
just this last week. Um, and then all the work that's being done by Bethlehem Inn and, and Neighbor Impact to increase um, beds in Bend and, and Redmond. So that's not for lack of trying, but it's just definitely not true um, that these people are not from Central Oregon. I have to input data every day, and many of these people have been here longer to, than 10 years um, for a long period of time. So. Yeah, I keep hearing this notion of like there's no away anymore. Um, people want folks to go away, but you go into another community and the same things are happening there, which I don't know if people are aware that this is a, a nationwide yeah, concern. And, and I did, I, I've heard people say that, you know, oh, I've gone to other cities and it's just not a problem there. Well, maybe they're just not in the area where people frequent in those cities, because I can tell you um, as a service provider, we do strategize nationally with other service providers and it's just not true homelessness is on the rise all across the country it's not something the city of bend is not doing um although we would love to see like additional funds and those i think the city is really trying to to have those conversations so um i think there's a lot of good things happening to support the service providers and the folks who are experiencing homelessness Um, one of the things that that doesn't do that is is pretending that these this is not a bend issue because it is it's it's an everywhere issue eliza the um we did have the bend humanity coalition on our previous podcast and and i know they're um they're working to try to alleviate this problem as well certainly from a different philosophical position you know, they're, they're advocating for more enforcement of rules around public urination, intoxication, um, with the idea of discouraging people from living on the streets. What do you, what do you, what's your thoughts when you hear that kind of philosophy or, or is that helpful? Um, it certainly elevated the conversation. I think we can agree with that. Right. Yeah. I think that, um, I don't think it's helpful, um, I understand where that comes from, right? Like the idea that if we punish people for something, then maybe they won't do it. Um, But I think that if people had other options, they wouldn't urinate outside, you know? Um, (laughs) It's not something I, people are not sleeping outside um, because they want to. Um, So punishing them and especially if it's financially, um, it really just creates additional barriers for people and makes it harder for them. Just like if, just like we're saying we don't want them where we see them, like we don't want to see them. They need to move where they used to be or outside of town or like if they could just move away or be in another part of town where we're not seeing them all the time. Um, that's just creating also additional barriers, right? Because if they're further away from resources, it's going to be even harder for them to become housed. Um, just like if you ticket someone and, and say, oh, you owe us $100 because um, you're sleeping on the sidewalk or you're, or you're, we saw you peeing in public, um, there's still no bathroom for them to go to. Right, right. So I don't think it solves, it's not solving anything. Um, And, you know, I just want to say like those in other cities where they do that, it is not just adults that they do that to. They do that to children as well. Um, 
that uh, like a 16 year old who's experiencing homelessness, um, giving them like giving them like making it illegal for them to sit on the sidewalk or sleep on the sidewalk. Um, there are a lot of super vulnerable people who are experiencing homelessness nationwide, but in our communities as well. Like I said, you know, under children um, who are with their families or unaccompanied children without guardians, um, the elderly, there are a lot of, of elderly folks who are experiencing homelessness in our community. And so, um, or people who are mentally ill or have chronic illnesses. And so, um, I guess I don't understand that the concept of making it harder for them. Well, one, yeah. one thing I think is it moves in a way of the, the problem is somewhat intractable. And aren't you just in those situations, moving people from social services to justice, um, the justice system, you're moving them essentially to either being in, in prison or giving a juvenile a record of some sort for some minor infraction they can't avoid um, instead of actually taking those. And it's money either way, in my opinion, you're, you're yeah. either putting, you're either spending it on, on one side or the other. And, and I think that's one of the, one of the things that I'm hopeful about when I, when we look at the situation is maybe we do start thinking like, do you want to move this person to into the juvenile system or do you want to move them into a place where social services are provided for juveniles without houses? So, um, right. I think that's such a good point in that we're talking about, okay, so the, we're still going to be providing, trying to provide services to people experiencing homelessness. So there's the tax dollars to do that. And then we're talking about using police time to ticket these folks or to arrest these folks. So that's additional tax money. And then to incarcerate them, which is additional tax. So you want to spend more money on the issue. Why don't we spend that money on things like housing and additional services for people that's, um, you know, like low barrier services or, um, you know, meeting those folks where they're at to address trauma and um, the experiences that they've, they've had while homeless. Um, we're spending the money either way. So. Yeah, I mean, I think there aren't there some studies about the cost of getting people housed versus all of these other things that are pretty clear that the, that track of housing first is actually the cheapest model. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, medical burden. People really like suffer medically when they are experiencing homelessness. Mm-hmm. Eliza, I wanted to ask you about um, the notion of the Joint Office of Homelessness. This is a um, something that was um, floated by some Bend City councilors. The idea is, um, and please feel free to correct me. It sounds like um, you know this is a now this is a government approach to essentially kind of sounds like similar to what the HLC is doing. Can you just you know inform listeners about your thought about that and how you think the two would work together? Yeah, I think um, so. I sit on the emergency homeless uh, this task force. Um, so it wouldn't in any way replace the HLC because the HLC is a, a mandate, um, like a federal mandate. So every region across the country has to have a continuum of care. Um, so the this that is regional, right? So the, the Homeless Leadership Coalition is a regional approach to um, bringing folks together to like address the needs of people experiencing homelessness, to provide education, do things like the pit count, um, the point in time count, um, and then uh, 
you know, connect, collect data and coordinated entry and all of those things that we are mandated to do by HUD. So that's our focus. A lot of times, like there's other things, you know, with such a broad issue, like we're brought into other conversations. Um, this joint office, so because we're regional, you know, the Confederate Trades of Warm Springs, Jefferson, Crook, and, and Deschutes Counties, um, this joint office would be specifically uh, Deschutes County and Bend. Um, so it's very different. I think it's great that they're taking the initiative to have an office that's designated to um, addressing the concerns um, that, you know, service providers have, the public has. Um, I hope what it does is it continues to educate like our officials and the people making decisions around funding and support for people experiencing homelessness. Um, because really, like we all in order to make a decision and um, decide whether or not we're going to support, you know, service providers or what we're going to do about the issue, they really have to be educated about what it is to be homeless. Um, so I think the more we can do around that, the better. Um, and I'm really excited about um, them taking the time to do that. Eliza, um, we've talked a lot about the issue in the in the broader sense. Maybe you could tell our listeners, viewers, readers, what uh, what specifically does uh, Grandma's House do and the services you provide? Yeah, um, Grandma's House is a shelter for pregnant and parenting teens in Central Oregon. Um, so we will serve youth from all across um, the region. Um, and we provide shelter for up to two years um, for, for the parents and their babies. Uh, we provide childbirth education classes, parenting classes. Um, and we also provide, um, you know, basic need items for anyone in need um, in the community for their children. So maternity clothes, um, women's clothing, baby clothing, um, diapers and wipes for anyone who has a child in need. Um, and we also have formula depending on like, you know, what kind of formula your baby uses. Um, and really we get a ton of donations and stuff like that to, so if someone has a need for their child, um, they can call grandma's house and we'll try to fill that need. Um, and yeah, grandma's house has been in the community for about 30 years. And I actually, uh, lived at grandma's house when I was the teen parent as well. Um, so it's a really great organization that I feel really lucky to be a part of. And then I also um, work uh, with JBRJU services, like over the street outreach program as well. Great. And, that, uh, and maybe just an insight into over the last year, year and a half, what, what does it look like to be running grandma's house and the needs, how have the needs changed or grown, shrunk possibly within um, that period for, for our community? Yeah. You know, as a shelter provider, things kind of have changed in just having to keep um, just being mindful of COVID and, and trying to reduce the, the spread of COVID. Um, so there's been a lot of things that we have to do. Like every time we have a, a positive COVID case, we've had, whether that's with staff or residents, we've had to shut down intakes. Um, so we've definitely been able to serve less um, moms and babies like for them staying in the shelter. We've um, definitely served more people in the community um, with like basic need items, um, but haven't been able to shelter as many because every time there's like a risk of COVID or there's COVID, uh, we've had to stop intakes, which is it's pretty much the same with uh, most shelters in the region. Um, 
it's been hard with staffing. Um, I think everyone's hiring. <laughs> we see the hiring signs and every, every, it doesn't matter, the hospital everywhere. Um, and so that's been tough uh, to just stay adequately staffed. When you're serving youth um, who are homeless, um, you we have to have a ratio. So it's not like adult programs um, where we can have a couple staff and for 90 residents and call it good. Um, for kids, uh, it's really like one staff for every four uh, young people in our program. So we have to be adequately staffed um, to provide shelter. Um, it's been hard. It's been hard for young people. They feel isolated. Um, and I think that's whether I'm talking about my own children or the children in our shelters. Um, it was hard when schools were were closed. Oh, my goodness. Our staff, uh, although they try to be teachers, they're not, you know, well, one of them is actually, she's a teacher, retired teacher. But um, so I think we just kind of are doing the best we can. And that's all we can do. Just like most of us, you know, just be kind and, and do the best we can. Yeah. Eliza, you mentioned earlier, just starting to talk about, Hey, let community members who are concerned, how about you volunteer? So um, before we wrap up today, we just have a few minutes left. Um, what does the community um, without homes need most right now? And how can community members help? Yeah, um, I think that there's so many great organizations to volunteer with, whether you want to volunteer your time um, or donate um, to those um, organizations. I think, you know, as, if you're a concerned community uh, member, we, we try when we hear about organizations, um, we try to connect with them and get them to be involved in the HLC so that we can really support them in supporting our unhoused neighbors. Um, I think that those folks, what they need is understanding and support. So whether that's connecting with one of our members, um, you know, there's there's lots of great members doing doing things in the community for folks. So whether it's our street outreach program at JBRJ or the Shepherd's House, I know they always need meals for their shelter, their low barrier shelter. Um, Grandma's House just did a meal for them last week and dropped some off. So I was just trying to, like, help each other. Um, people always need socks, clean socks. Um, so donating I think on every, you know, every website. So on our website, Grandma's House website, we have a wish list. I know Bethlehem always needs things for their folks um, and the outreach uh, workers do as well. So just connecting with any of them. We have a lot of great um, people doing that work in the community and, and talking to them about what they see the need is. Because I think we all want to do, especially around the holidays, people want to do a lot of good things for people, but they don't really know where to go. So connect with uh, one of the resources in Bend and, or Central Oregon, and, and I'm sure they'd be able to steer them the right way. Okay. Well, we have also, I can insert here our plug for centralorgangives.com and .org. You can give directly to Grandma's House and J-Bar-J Services, and this week, You'll get a glass of home kombucha. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah. Thank so. you. That's awesome. Well, this has been such a pleasure to um, hear from you and hear about your story um, and about the work you're doing. It's so inspiring, really, um, just to know that there's so many folks out there who really care about the issue and um, are doing great work. Thank you, Nicole. I appreciate yeah. it. And if and if people want to get involved or they want to collaborate, um, I think it's really important for, you know, we, we want you. Uh, the HLC wants you as a member. We want to um, 
to support you and connect you with other people doing the work so that we're not reinventing the wheel all the time and we're working together to do the best we can for those folks. That's yeah. great. Eliza, thanks for being here. This has been the Bendo Break podcast with Eliza Wilson, program manager of Grandma's House of Central Oregon for JBARJU Services. Thank you again for being here. Thank you.